We have been journeying through the book of Philippians, and I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed it. Philippians is one of my favorite books, and I'm actually kind of sad that we are finishing the book this morning. So uh, just so you know, we're going to spend the bulk of our time in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. We'll spend a little bit of time kind of just closing out the book uh, at the end. But I want to read just verse 10 all the way to the end so that we can read the whole book. Um, together. And so that means it's taken us about two and a half months or so to journey through the book of Philippians. So Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be Content, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and, once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then verse 21, he says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Well, since we began this series several months ago, I have been looking forward to this text. Because this word that I just mentioned, that word contentment, it has such a rich uh, rich application, implications for our lives. This text, um, I think in the grand scheme of Scripture, uh, is so important. So today, Tristan mentioned this earlier, Paul's going to tell us a secret, right? He's going to tell us a secret, and it's interesting that secret is the word that God inspires Paul to write. And so you have to ask the question, okay, what is, what is the secret? Why does he call it a secret. Well, we're going to find that out today, and we're going to start in verse 10, and we will work our way towards the secret. So he says in verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So this is a good time to remind you, Paul is in prison while he is writing this, and prison worked differently in the first century than it does uh, today. It's, it's completely different from the prison system that we have in a in America, prisoners were not provided basic needs by the people who imprisoned them, okay? So you weren't provided clothes, you weren't provided food, you were completely dependent on people from the outside to bring you those things. So if you wanted clothes, someone had to bring them to you. If you wanted food, someone had to bring you that food. And Paul says he is rejoicing in the Lord because the people of the church in Philippi have revived their concern for him. And if you go to verse 18, it tells us, how they did that. He says in 18, I have received full payment and more, and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So he's not only referring to money 
in this text. Um, he's not only referring to money, that Epaphroditus had brought him many things, and he says, I received full payment and more. So it's not just money, it's the physical expression of love. It's a physical expression of community. And so this hits at the core, one of the core roles that each of us have in this faith family. And so this is just kind of a side note, but the reality is that at some point, all of us, all of us in this room will be in need. Right? We will be in need, whether, whether we want to admit it or not, that there are, times, there are times in life when we won't be in need, where we really will be okay. But for all of us, there are seasons, there are moments when we will be in need. And it's our responsibility to not only provide for the financial needs of others, but also for the physical needs of your brothers and sisters. And that's what we see here, is they come alongside Paul and say, hey, we're going to provide for the mission. We're going to encourage you in the mission of God, but we're also going to give you food. We're going to give you clothes. And so he starts off by thanking them for providing for his needs. But then he says in verse 11, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. And here's what he says, I, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So while on one hand, he thanks them for providing for his needs, on the other, he wants to make something clear that even if, even if his needs were not provided for, he would still be content. Right? He would still be content. So he wants to make clear that it wasn't that, hey, I was really sad and depressed, and then you gave me money and food and clothes, and that is what made me happy. But rather, he wants them to understand that his joy was completely dependent on something else. He says, I have learned what it means to be content. So before we go any further, let's clarify what that word content is. Means I don't know if anyone's ever heard of um, an old Puritan pastor named Jeremiah Burroughs. Anybody ever heard of him? Cool. Okay. So uh, Jeremiah Burroughs is an old Puritan minister, and his definition of this word I have always found incredibly helpful. So Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I know this might sound like a seminary class, but just stay with me. Okay. Uh, the Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And in his definition, I think it's beautiful, and, and I think he's right. He says, Christian contentment is a sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of the Spirit. Okay? Let me read that again. Christian contentment is a sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of the Spirit. Another way to say that is Christian contentment is an inward, peaceful disposition. So it's, it's inward, meaning it's, it's being content is... It's peace on the inside. I don't need everything to be okay to be okay. It means contentment. Um, it's not just acting like everything is okay when really it isn't. It's not putting on a mask and, and acting as if you have your life together. He, he, Jeremiah says in his book that there's a couple different uh, ways that people show their discontentment. Okay, And the first one is this. He says, some people are so weak, they cannot restrain the unrest of their spirit but in words and behavior, they reveal what woeful disturbances there are within. <laughs> Their spirits are like the raging sea casting forth nothing but mire and dirt, not only to themselves, but to all with whom they live. Now, don't look at people around you, okay? Um, but he says there are some people that when things go wrong, they cause chaos. I mean, they, they can't help but cause chaos around them. It's, it's not graciousness. It's, it's not a disposition of 
peace that there is a disposition of dissatisfaction, right? You are, you are always positioned to be dissatisfied with something, whether it's people in your family, whether it's uh, people around you, whether it's your, your work or, or whatever circumstance it is, your natural position is, I am dissatisfied with this. I am discontent with this. And I, and I think that's why Paul, he warns the Philippians earlier in chapter two, right? He says in Philippians 2.14, he tells them, hey, do all things without grumbling or disputing because that is a sign. If you're a grumbler, if you're a, a disputer, that's a sign of discontentment. If that's what you always do, if your natural disposition is to have a complaining spirit, then that can be a root that there's something on the inside that isn't right, that, that within your soul there is no peace. And then he says there are others who are able to portray that they have an inward disposition of peace, but on their minds and on the inside, it's chaos. He, he says it this way. He says, even though they boil inwardly and eat away like a canker, while there is a serene calm on their tongues have blustering storms upon their spirits. And while they keep silent, their hearts are troubled and are worn away with anguish. They have peace and quiet outwardly, but within they have a turbulence within their souls. So contentment, it's not just acting like you're fine. It's not just putting on a facade to the people around you that you have it, have it all together. There was a guy that I used to do a college ministry with, and every time I saw him, I would say, hey man, how are you? And his response was always the same. He would say, well, I'm just too blessed to be depressed. And finally, I was like, are you really? <laughs> like, are you really just too blessed to be depressed? And come to find out, that was just a saying that he had used to protect himself from any kind of negative feelings that, that he would have. So true contentment, it's not just saying it. It's, it's feeling it. It's an inward peace. And that inward peace, that doesn't mean that you're ignorant of afflictions, Okay? You're not ignorant of afflictions, that when something happens, you don't actually acknowledge the difficulty of something. I used to do this. Right? Before I really understood the gospel and the power and the authority and the supremacy of Christ, I would think, oh, my parents divorced, that's not a big deal. Oh, this thing happened. Oh, my marriage struggles. Oh, my whatever. It's, it'll be fine. Right? Saying it is not really contentment if there's turmoil on the inside. It's okay to call something difficult difficult. So to have contentment, inward peace, doesn't mean that you don't bring your struggles to God. Yeah, I mean, the Psalms, just read the Psalms. You don't bring, it doesn't mean that you don't bring your struggles to God. It also doesn't mean that you don't ask for help from community or even a professional, like a counselor, like ignoring the difficulties of life will never result in true contentment in this life. You can acknowledge your need, but still be content in Christ. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He is acknowledging his need to the Philippians, while at the same time, he is content. He has inward peace despite his circumstances. And one of the key words in verse 11, I think, is the word learn. Paul says, I have learned to be content. So that helps us make, infer a couple things. So first, by Paul saying this is something I have learned, means that, uh, that at some point, he didn't have it. If it's something that's learned, that means at some point, he did not have contentment. So contentment isn't something that's natural. Right? And I think we can learn contentment through two primary ways. The first way is just knowing God, just knowing him, right? knowing him. You want peace? Know the author of peace. You, you want satisfaction? Know the unending well of joy that can only come from our maker. That, that's the only place you're going to find it. Think about it. Paul, maybe more than anybody else, 
knows the Old Testament scriptures inside and out. So you think about what Paul knows from the scriptures. I mean, things like Habakkuk 3.17, where it says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce, produce of the olive fail, and the ye- fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Though everything's falling apart, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Psalm 4-7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Psalm 63-3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And so our primary way of learning contentment is always going to be digging into, submitting to, and memorizing the word of God. And then it's not only studying it, but it's praying those words back to God, right? It's engaging with who God is, who he's called you to be. It's, it's praying and saying, God, you say, you, David said, your love is better than life. Help me experience that. Help me know that. Help me believe that. It's asking the Holy Spirit, God within us, to make us believe what we read. Saying, God, help me in my unbelief. So on one hand, it's this intellectual change of thinking about your disposition in life. That my purpose in this life is to enjoy the presence of God, is to bring glory to God. And I know that in my mind that God is better than any circumstance, right? I know that in my mind. So the second way we learn contentment is actually learning through experiencing the faithfulness, the love, the grace of God in day in and day out moments. It's learning that in the worst of times, like just think about the worst time in your life, in the worst of times, the grace of Jesus and the presence of God is more than enough to bring you joy. It's learning that even in the best of times, so your wedding day, the day you graduated, whatever that best moment was that even those moments fall short of the joy that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says it this way in verse 12. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. And by the way, when Paul says these things, like we have a reason to believe him. We have reasons to believe that he's been brought low. We have reasons to believe that he has abounded. Like, let me just read to you out of 2 Corinthians eleven twenty one. It's this fascinating text where uh, Paul is just talking about what he's been through. He says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty one. I think it'll be on the screen. He says, whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. <laughs> Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? And listen to what he says. I am a better one. (laughs) I I love that. I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, 
and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me of anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I know what it's like to be poor. I know what it's like to be wealthy. I know what it's like to be hungry, and I know what it's like to have abundance. And I know how, in the midst of all those things, to not sell out to it and have it be my identity. So I know how to be poor, but still give glory to Christ. I know how to be wealthy and still find my worth in Christ. I know how to be hungry and be satisfied in Christ. I know what it's like to have more than I could ever dream of and still have a deep desire for Christ. So I want you to do something. I know this might be a little strange. Um, I want you to close your eyes or look down. Um, just don't look at me and, don't, and try not to look at other people, okay? So just find a space where you can really focus your heart, your mind on the gospel, on, on God. For some of you, it may even be helpful to grab a pen or your notes app or something to write um, this down because I'm going to ask you a question, okay? Um, I want you to think on, think of, the most difficult thing in your life right now, the hardest thing, uh, whatever is causing you discontentment. Uh, it could be your health, could be finances, could be a broken relationship, a struggle with sin, could be anxiety, but whatever it is, I want you to take a moment here and let that thing, which can be scary, let that thing come to the forefront of your mind. Like, feel the difficulty of it. Feel the weight of it. So think on that thing and write it down if you need to, but feel it for a second. Now with that in your mind, listen to God's words and let them just wash over you. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Psalm 46, 1-2. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Romans 8:38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. In the midst of all of our sorrow, our anxiety, our, our fear, our pain, in the, most, in the midst of all of that, the secret to contentment is believing that he's better. He's better. The secret of contentment in the midst of being brought low, the secret of inward peace, a disposition of peace during difficult times, it's not a complicated truth. It's, it's looking at him and his supremacy, his authority, his sovereignty, and it's saying, I believe you. <laughs> I believe you. I believe that you're good. I believe that you're satisfying. I believe that you're 
better. It's looking at him and saying, okay, I, the world can be closing in around me, but I will not move from this space. You will hold me fast, and my eyes are set on you. Okay, so look down again if you've looked up. This time I want you to think of, which may be hard to do after I just made you do something difficult, um, but I want you to think of like the best thing, right? The best thing in your life right now, something that has brought you immense joy. Maybe that is your family. You're thankful for your spouse, for your kids, for your parents. Maybe it's, it's financially. You've been blessed in some way, somehow. Uh, maybe it's just a recent memory that's just filled with you with joy. Maybe it's a movie you watched recently. You might have seen Top Gun. It's a good movie, right? Like, just think about Tom Cruise. No, don't do that. Um, but, but maybe it's just whatever it is, what has brought you joy? Think on that. Feel that. Right? Just take a moment and feel the, uh, remember um, the joy that God has bring. Now listen to the words of God again. Psalm 84, 1 through 2, he says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Philippians 3, 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Acts 20, 24, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The secret to contentment in the midst of abounding, having peace in the midst of the victory, is believing that that victory is nothing but a shadow compared to the victory we have in Christ. The greatest thing in your life will always be lesser. It will have lesser joy than the presence of God. That's the truth to contentment. It's believing that. And your life, it's not defined by your victories. It's not defined by your, your, your struggles, by the sins of the past or the fears of the world. Your life is defined by the authority of God who sent Christ to the cross and brought him from death to life. That is the only thing that defines us. And believing that will bring a freedom to our souls, to our lives, that is supernatural. So this means it doesn't matter if you're single or you're married. It doesn't matter if you have kids or you don't have kids. It doesn't matter if you have the job you want or you absolutely hate your jobs. It doesn't matter if you have money or you don't have money. It means that in any and every circumstance, I have a sweet, quiet, gracious frame of the Spirit. It means that no matter what, my disposition in this life is confidence in Him. And changing circumstances cannot shift my disposition because I am fully dependent on him. That's contentment. Um, When I was in college, I took a class called positive psychology, which just straight up just sounds like a disaster, doesn't it? Um, And in the class, the professor made us watch a documentary called The Secret. Anybody ever heard of this? It's very popular for a time. Uh, It's very mainstream. Well, it all centered around the idea of positive thinking. So 
if you want a million dollars, you just focus everything you have towards that goal. So if I want a million dollars, then I would just believe that I will get a million dollars and then orient my actions around the reality that that will happen. And as I was thinking about this, I think um, there was a time in my life when um, I substituted real contentment with positive thinking, and I just slapped the label Christianity on it. That's where we get the prosperity gospel from, right? This idea of health and wealth. It's, it's just positive thinking but in slapping a Christianity label on it. And that's not what Paul's talking about here. Contentment in Christ is not just simply thinking positively. It's not claiming that God is going to fix your circumstances despite the reality that everything keeps falling apart. Contentment in Christ is the transference of dependence from this life to the authority and supremacy of God. It's the understanding that my life for eternity is tethered to the eternal. It's tethered to the eternal, and no one and no thing can disconnect it. And since my life is not tethered to this world, then its circumstances don't command the actions and beliefs of my soul. The Alpha and Omega, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace, the Creator, the Sustainer, He is the only one who commands my soul because my life is tethered to Him because He's adopted me and called me and chosen me as His own. You know, that, that word um, content, um, it's literally the combination, and, okay, so stay with me here. It's the combination of the word self and sufficient. The Greek word for it is autarkes, okay? A-U-T-A-R-K-E-S, autarkes. So that's auto, the word for self, and then it's the word archis, which is the, where we get the word sufficiency from. So self-sufficiency. So he says, so I have learned in whatever situation I am to be self-sufficient, which you're like, okay, that sounds backwards, right? I thought I was supposed to be dependent on God. I'm not supposed to be dependent on myself. I'm not self-sufficient. Look at verse 13, okay? One of the most misquoted verses in all of Scripture. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So follow me here. I can be self-sufficient. I can be content. I can be self-sufficient because the one who is truly self-sufficient strengthens me. God is not dependent on anyone or anything. His emotions don't change based on circumstances. He doesn't change based on the times. He doesn't need money. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need a better job. He's sufficient within himself. He doesn't need anyone or anything. And Paul is saying, I have learned to be self-sufficient because the true self-sufficient one gives me strength. So I can be brought high. I can be brought low. I can do all things because he gives me the strength to do it. So take away my money. I'll praise him because it's his strength. Ruin my reputation. I'll praise him. It's his strength. Give me the perfect life, I'll praise him, because he gives me strength. Give me kids, don't give me kids, I'll praise him. He gives me the strength to do it. I can do all things, because he is he who strengthens me. So this verse isn't saying that I, Colton White, can be an NFL quarterback, just newsflash, right? That's not what this verse is, is saying. I mean, like, I don't know, that through strength in Christ, you can throw a football 80 yards. Like, there is not a more misquoted verse in Scripture. Maybe Jeremiah 
29.11 or Psalm 46.10. But for me, I learned pretty quick that I couldn't throw a spiral. I think in the seventh grade, the coach saw me throw one ball and put me on the punt team immediately, and I was never given a shot after that, right? My football career was over in about 10 seconds. But Paul is saying here, he's saying in verse 13, give me the best of the best, or give me the worst of the worst, and the result in my soul is the same. It's praise. It's glory. It doesn't matter what the circumstances look like. That's contentment. The world shifts around you. It can be good. It can be bad. But it doesn't matter because your disposition stays the same. All praise and glory to him. Always. That's contentment. So he finishes out the book, and he just loves these people. We don't have time uh, to go through every single, the rest of this thing. But the root of their friendship is so clear and it is, it, is, it is the gospel. And so if I could close out this season on studying Philippians as a faith family, I think I would just remind you of these few simple truths, right? The things, and really it's this one overarching truth, but the things found in Christ, they will always last. They will always last. Friendships that are found in Christ will last. Friendships that are found over hobbies, they will fade, right? Satisfaction can only be found in Christ. Satisfaction that is found in Christ, that will last. You try to find satisfaction in this world, it's going to fade. If you want to press on towards the goal of Christ, because he's made you his own, it will last. If you try to press on towards the goal of the world, it's going to fade. It's going to fail. Contentment in Christ will last. But you try to find contentment, inward peace in this world, it's going to be chaos. The things found in Christ will always last. So that's what we want to believe here. And so in a moment when we sing, I would just encourage you, man, what does it mean to believe that he will hold us fast for eternity? What does it mean that our life is tethered to the eternal, that nothing can separate us from him? What does it mean to truly worship in a disposition, a gracious frame of peace and praise.